slowly moving along through the historical record of God's revelation of himself. That's what this is in his word. His revealing of his interaction with people. What is his plan with and for people? And really the revelation of the gospel of our salvation. All of that is recorded and all of that is presented in his word. So we've started studying in the book of Genesis. We're going to make our way all the way to the book of Revelation. God's revelation of himself, of his plan and dealings with people, and the revelation of his gospel uh, of our good news in Jesus Christ our Savior. This week is week 12, and I was just thinking about that. We have covered a whole bunch of stuff. We've covered a lot of ground in 12 weeks Creation, Adam, Eve, sin, Noah, Abraham, a promised land, a promised Savior, Messiah, blessing for all nations, Isaac, Jacob, all these accounts, a lot more stuff in the middle of all of those things, weird accounts, some of them strange accounts, some of them, I'll just tell you this, it doesn't get any better moving forward, there's still going to be weird accounts and strange accounts. We've covered a whole bunch of ground, but the truth is at the same time, we're just barely getting started. So I think about good night, we've covered a lot, and then we're just barely getting started in our movement. Tonight, our lesson is entitled Home Again, Home Again. Our verses tonight, and I hope it's going to start getting smaller, uh, Genesis chapter 31, 32, and 33. Three entire books in the, three entire chapters in the book of Genesis, chapter 31, 32, and 33. All right, we're going to get started. Before we do, let me, let me just say this. As we start, we're going to keep moving along, but I want to introduce two ideas about Bible study that I never heard as an adult until I was an adult and never really understood what they were, never really heard them. But then when I start to, to see these two words, uh, it makes a big difference in how we approach, how I approach Scripture, how we understand Scripture. So, all right, we're going to get started on a whole big old chunk of verses. But before we do, let me introduce you to two words and really thoughts about Bible study. The two words are exegesis and eisegesis. Two strange words, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is discovering the intended and original message of the passage and letting the verse, letting the text speak out. That's exegesis, exegetical study. We're going to look at the verse. We're going to study the verse. We're going to study the word meaning of the verse. And the verse is going to speak to us. It is going to speak out. It's going to show us the original intended message for the readers, the possessors of that text. That's exegesis. That's one way to approach Scripture. Another way to approach Scripture is called eisegesis, eisegesis. It is not letting the text speak out, but it is the process of reading into the text. And so it's taking your ideas, your applications, and seeking to find them in the verse. Here's my idea, here's the application I want, and I'm seeking for that to be found in the verse. It's expressing a meaning not pulled out of the verse, but forced into the verse. Now, let me just tell you, that's happening uh, a whole lot of times in the day we're living in. We need the verse to say something. We want the verse to say something. And so instead of letting the verse speak out to us, we're putting our meaning 
into the verse. Now, what causes that? Uh, think about how we study the Bible a lot of times today. We want about a 20-minute Bible study. We want about a 30-minute Bible study. We want three points out of our Bible study. And we, if they rhyme, that's even better. And then we want an application to take away from the Bible study. So we build that. We come to the verses, and we need it to say these things. We want it to have this application. And so instead of letting the verse speak outward to us, outwardly to us, we're, letting, we're putting our agenda into the verse. People want this to be the focus of Scripture. Now let me just tell you there's a, another twist to that. In our world, especially in our day today, we are me-centered, and it's about me. And I, I want something for me, and I want the burgers to be the way I want the burgers to be, and I want the Bible study to be the same way, the way I want it to be. And so it translates into our Bible study. We want the Bible study to be me-centered. Did you know sometimes you study the Bible, and it's a historical account? That's not talking to you. It's, it's for you. You learn from it. We're building our understanding of, of God and the gospel. But you know what? Sometimes you may read a whole chunk of Scripture, and there may have been no point of application. Well, that drives us crazy because we're so me-centered, and so we start building applications that are not there. Today we're going to see a place in our study where this commonly happens. So we're going to go through a bunch of verses, and it just so happens we're going to see a place where this frequently, commonly happens. Now, what do we do about eisegesis? Here's what I want you to do. We should be aware of it, be looking for it, and then be careful of it. Am I trying to make this verse say something it doesn't say? Am I trying to make an application that's not there? And then I, I, when we get there, how many sermons do you leave and say, I don't know if that's what the verse was saying, what God was saying through his word to us, and not what somebody crafted it to say. So be aware of that, be looking for that, be careful for that. All right, we're starting in chapter 31. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to talk and explain as we move through it. We'll pull some stuff out as we go. <clears throat> chapter 31. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that, belong, all that was our father's. And from what belonged to our father, he has made all this wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, his father-in-law, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Now, right there, it's kind of a goofy thing. What did Laban do? He tricked him into marrying both his daughters. He tricked him into working 14 years. He added another six years to that. We're going to see that he changed his pay ten times. I don't see where he ever was friendly to Jacob. But Jacob says, hey, I noticed my father-in-law's not friendly any longer, anymore. I read that and go, I don't know when he ever was that friendly. The sons of Laban are saying, you've stolen our wealth. You've stolen our sheep. And so when we start off the chapter there is disharmony, there is discord, there is distrust that is brewing. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. God tells Jacob it's time to go home. Now remember God's plan. God's plan is that there would be a people. The people would have a land. The people would be in the land 
and produced from that people would be our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, all of these events we've been reading have occurred. Well, now the plan is for these people to go back home. He tells him it's time to return home. So Jacob sent, called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field, and said to them, I see your father's attitude, that it is not friendly toward me as formerly. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God didn't allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth striped. Talking about the sheep. If they were striped, they were Jacob's. Well, the brothers started complaining about that. Well, if they're speckled, they are Jacob's. And so God increased the flock through that means. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. And it came about at that time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. He said, Lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I want to stop here for just a second, verse 12. God has seen the injustice. Now, it's not been over a short period of time. It's been over 20 years, but God is aware of the things he's endured. Sometimes we think, well, God didn't see that. God doesn't know about that. God has a plan. We're going to see his plan unfold, but be aware of this. God sees the injustice. He sees all the things that Jacob has endured. Verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you appoint, anointed a pillar. You made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? He tells his two wives, Laban's daughters, Hey, we're getting ready to go back to the land I'm from. God has told us that. And he reminds them of the injustice. They say, Well, do we have an inheritance there anyway? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. They say, it's fine, we're with you. Then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels and drove away all his livestock and all his property which he gathered, his acquired livestock which he gathered to Paden Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, all right, let me explain what's happening here. Jacob has gone to shear his flock. He's outside of the camp. He calls his two wives up. He explains to them what has happened, but he's not in the camp. Well, now we're going to see Laban goes off uh, also to shear his sheep outside of camp. Then Jacob arose and put his children and wives upon camels and drove away all of his livestock and all his property which he had gathered. His acquired livestock which he gathered 
paid in Aram to go to the land in Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. All right, so Laban leaves his camp to go outside to shear the sheep. Rachel goes back to their home and steals the household idols. We'll talk about this in a second. And Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now I want you to see the word deceived. Here's the thing about Jacob. God has instructed him to go. He has fulfilled his duty. He is free to go. And he should have gone to Laban and said, you know what, I'm going home. I've done the things that we agreed I would do. God has told me to leave and I'm going home. But it says he deceived his father-in-law. Now, the word in Hebrew, the word for deceived means to defraud. He lied. He uh, slips around the truth. And instead of going and saying, you know what, we're going home and, and this is how it's going to be, he deceives him. Here's, here's, here's something to remember right here. If it is God's will and if it is good and if it is right, we have nothing to worry about. We have nothing to hide. Uh, we, we do not have to slip around. And I think we should take that from this, this, this set of verses. That's a good standard. If it is good, if it is God's will, then we can be bold in it. So here, here's something to think about. If we have to not tell somebody, if we have to hide something, if we have to do something deceptively, we need to be measuring, is this actually of God's will? Now, I can tell you in bad things, we for sure hide it. We for sure do it in the dark. But did you know you can even do good things and do it deceptively? He was doing a good thing. He was obeying God. He should have just gone to his father-in-law and said, I've paid my debt. God has instructed me and we're leaving. But again, he is found deceiving. Now, notice this. This is the pattern of Jacob. He's always tried to take matters into his own hands. He's always tried to take the shortcut. He is named the deceiver, Jacob. And so that's always been his pattern. All right, let's go back. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob fled, he got a three-day head start. Then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. God is in the process. God is protecting him. He's going to get him. On the way there, he has a dream. God says, do not speak to him either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? By deceiving me and carrying my, my, away my daughters like captives of the sword. Now I want to stop right here for just a second and I want to think about something else. Now this is a big thing. This is a heavy thing to consider. Right here we see God is in the details. Isn't he? He tells him to leave. He tells him leave him alone. 
God's plan is moving forward. Remember the plan to have a land, the promised land, to inhabit the land, to have a people in the land, and out of that people to produce a Savior, our Messiah. And so we see here, he's working to move the plan forward. He's working in his plan. Well, here's a good question. So how involved is God in the plan? And, and, and you say, well, that, that sounds like a pretty crazy question. Go back to the sheep. If it's striped, they're having striped sheep. If it's speckled, they're having speckled sheep. God is even determining the speckle or the stripe of a sheep in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, uh, so, that, so that Jacob will be blessed. He is intimately involved in what's going on. Now, here's, here's the question. I want you to think about this. How do we see God in life knowing that's, that's what he is, intimately involved? How should we see God? He is sovereign. Now, that means he's ruling. He's in charge. God is sovereign. Totally, yes. He is all-powerful. He can do anything. So he is in charge, yes. He's also all-powerful. Can do anything, yes. Here's the question. Does he always work in the details? Now, let me give you an example. This hit me last week, literally on this night. There is a storm last week. There is a tornado last week. There are people praying that that storm would turn and miss them. There are people in Vernon praying that the storm would turn and miss them. The, tur the storm turns and missed them. But in missing them, it hit other people and their stuff and their houses who perhaps may have also been praying that it would turn and not hit them. And so I, I sit there and we start to think about that. Some of them are praying it misses them. It misses them. Some of them are praying it misses them. It doesn't miss him. Where is God in that? Was God with one of them but not with the other? Was God listening to one, but not for some reason listening to the other? Is he in the details that specifically? Here's some questions. I want you just to think about it, and then I'm going to get you to an answer. Could he move, could he act, turn the storm, and it be an act of grace? Yes, he could. It could be a great act of kindness. Could he not move and not act? and it be an act of grace. Well, if it missed the people that it hit when it did change, yeah, it could be an act of grace, an act of kindness. Could he move an act, and it be an act of judgment, which means he took it to somebody's house to, in judgment of him. So could he move and it be an act of judgment? Yes. Could he not move, leave it on the course it was, and that be an act of judgment? Yes. And so I start to see the problem here. It could be an act of grace, it could be an act of judgment. It could be an act of kindness. It could be an act of judgment. All of these things. Here's the question. How do you know? How do you know? Now, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty tough question. But, you know, I was planning this afternoon looking at all this stuff. Did you know I've prayed with folks uh, over a child that they lost? And I've prayed with folks over a child they should have lost that they didn't lose? And you go, is God in the details of those things too? If he is, is that an act of judgment or an act of kindness? How do we know those things? 
Let me tell you, here's your answer. The, the answer is this. We're going to see it played out. You have to trust God. That sounds kind of cliche, but you have to trust God. Now, to trust God, you have to know God. You're not going to trust a God you do not know. You have to know God. Now, as you know God, you start to see he's wise. In fact, he's perfect in wisdom. In fact, he doesn't make a mistake because his wisdom is infinitely perfect. He's not 99% wise. He is infinite wisdom. At the same time, as you know God, you see he's good. What does it mean to be good? He's kind. He's gracious. He actually is good. He's not a little bit good. He's not good sometimes. He is good. So start to add it up. Is he wise? Yes. Does he know the best thing? Yes. Is he good? Yes. Kind and gracious? Yes. Is he just? Which means, does he just have it out for some folks but not others? Does he do the right thing by all people righteously? Yes. He is all of those things. And so here's the thing. We're not infinite in wisdom. We can't see from an eternal perspective, but we can know God. And when you know God, here's what you can do. And we, we're going to see it over and over in Scripture. When you know God, you can say this. If the storm comes, I trust God. And if the storm turns, I trust God. And that only happens by knowing God. Here's the deal. How do you know God? Only through time spent in the Word of God. Only through time spent in the Word of God. You have to know His Word to know God. So you know what? Is God involved? Yes. Intimately, yes. What about Laban? He lost the sheep. You have to know God to trust God, and then you're safe. You have peace in the storm. All right, let's get back to work. Verse 27. Why did you flee? His father-in-law catches him. Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me I might have sent you away with joy and songs and with timbrel and lyre? And did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. He says, why didn't you let me know? Maybe we'd have celebrated. Is it in my power to do you harm? It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful. Do not speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. Here's another question. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. The one whom you, you find your gods shall not live. He says, I left because I was scared you'd do something to us. I don't know who has your gods. The one that has your gods should not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours. Show me who has them among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. All right, let me tell you about the household gods. These are statues, most likely, images of false gods. They evidently had adopted pagan practices. They have these household gods. They would worship them. They would pray to them. Uh, some of them would be for other specific things, like we'll turn to this one for this thing, and we need rain, we'll turn to this one for that thing. Here's the thing about the, the household gods. They were to be given to the oldest son. They were the inheritance of the oldest son. So the person that's in possession of the household gods is now the head of the house, 
is now the head of the next generation. So in a weird thing, remember Jacob steals the birthright and the blessing? Guess what his wife Rachel has done? She has now stolen the inheritance from her brothers and her dad. Out of spite, I don't know what the reason is, probably at taking issue with them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent, but he did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. He's been looking. He's been calling him a thief. He finally got mad and said, who are you looking for? What are you looking for? He finally gets mad. What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. What did you find? You didn't find anything. These 20 years, here he comes uncorked. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of the beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it by my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was by day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered judgment last night. He tells him, you haven't done the right thing. God has seen it. God has provided for me. Then Laban replied to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, the grandchildren, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do to these daughters or to their children whom they have born? So come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now, Laban called it Jagar Shadutha, but Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it shall be named Gilead and Mizpah. For he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you mistreat my daughters or you took wives beside my daughters, although no man is to see us, God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap and pillar, behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I may not pass by this heap to do you harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar for, to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain, and he called his kinsmen to the mill. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning Laban rose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. They make an agreement. 
They mark the spot of the agreement. They offer a sacrifice. They eat a meal. Laban says, I won't follow you past this monument. Jacob says, I won't come back and come back on you to harm you past this monument. They make an agreement there. That section ends. That episode ends. Now he turns his face and he starts to go back home, the original plan. Now that issue is settled. That thing is resolved. But now there's another problem, and the problem is Esau. And remember when he leaves, it's been 20 years now, but when he leaves, Esau is brewing in hatred. And he has told his brother, I will kill you. When the time is right, I will kill you. Most likely when our dad is gone, I will kill you. And the only way that Esau stays normal or sane is by consoling himself, I'm going to kill Jacob. And that's what he says. Do what you need to do, but I will kill you. I will have my revenge. And that's how he consoles himself. Well, guess what? That issue is gone. He's moving on, but guess who's at home? Esau. So he has trouble ahead of him. All right, moving to chapter 32. Now, as Jacob went out on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanam. Then Jacob sent messengers from before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to the Lord, my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned, I have traveled with Laban, and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and 400 men, uh-oh, are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. All right, he sends warning. Hey, go back home. When you find Esau, tell him your brother's coming home. Tell him he's got all this stuff. He's got camels. He's got servants. Tell him he's making his way home. They come back and they say, not only did he take the message, he is coming and he's bringing 400 men with him. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother and furthermore he's coming to meet you. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and divided the people and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. His plan is we'll divide in two, and if he kills one group, the other group will run off. We'll save one of these groups. For he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, here he prays, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all your loving kindness and of all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed the Jordan, and now I have come, become two companies. He says, God, you've blessed me when I left. It was me and a staff. Now I come back, and it's two groups with all these folks. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers and with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as, as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. He starts reminding God, God, you said go home. 
You're the one that said make the trip. You're the one that said you'd bless me. Remember that. Protect me as I go. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hands of his servant, everyone, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between the droves. He commanded the front one saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those that followed, the fourth, the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent them and he sent across what he had. Now let me explain that. That's a lot of words. He's going to see his brother. He knows his brother is mad. He decides, I'll send a whole bunch of gifts to calm down my brother, to appease my brother. So he puts them in waves. He's going to run into the first wave. And if that doesn't calm him down, he'll run into the second wave. And if that doesn't calm him down, he'll run into the third wave. And they'll say, you know what? Your brother's coming and these are gifts for you. And if that doesn't calm him down, they'll run into the fourth wave. As night comes, it says he sends his two wives and his, and his two maids and the kids, even them in groups. And so everybody's crossed the river. They're going to meet Esau. They're going to say, these are gifts for you. Hopefully he'll be appeased. And Jacob stays back. Now I want you to notice this. Who is most important to Jacob right here? His favorite wife's gone. His kids are gone. His stuff is gone. He's basically made the determination and now in his action, his declaration, I'm the most important thing. And you know what? If they can't get through and they take out the first bunch, then there'll be a second and there'll be a third, but I'll be back here. He doesn't even cross the river. The deceiver is still trying to craft an answer according to what his logic is. Everybody takes off. All right. The next section, and I, it's too good to pass up. The next section are some of the wildest, most speculated on maybe overreached and distorted and misused verses in Scripture. And, and I'm going to read the account, and it's, it's, it's weird, and it's strange, and then it's the most misused stuff you've ever seen, and I'll show you this. Here is our example of letting the verses speak out, exegesis, or trying to read something into the verses that's not in the verses, eisegesis. All right, verses 24 through 32. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw 
that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the, the man, touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Now here's what happens. He stays back. It is getting dark. A man shows up. Now we're going to find out that man is the pre-incarnate Christ. So you could say this is Christ. A man shows up. He doesn't know the man. He doesn't know who the man is. It says they start to wrestle. Now I want you to tell, tell you how I think. I'm 51 years old. It's been a long time since I wrestled anybody. Why does somebody walk up and you start wrestling? Why wrestle that man? It said the man started the wrestling with him. Why are they wrestling? Why would you wrestle with Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ? What is the point in the wrestling? All right, watch this. It looks like Jacob is winning. Can you win wrestling God? Can he out-wrestle, honestly, Jesus? That sounds crazy. Let me go. God tells Jacob, let me go. Or is he that great of a wrestler? Does this make any sense? He's prevailing. The sun's getting ready to come up. So the, the, the pre-incarnate Christ touches his hip. It translates either touches or strikes. So I don't know if he does a wrestling move or if he just touches it. His hip is dislocated. It says he still wrestles and the sun comes up. That's what happens. The word prevailed in the Hebrew doesn't mean he won. And so he doesn't go into a wrestling match and win it, but he stayed with it. It actually translates endured, overcame, lasted. And so he stayed in the battle. He stayed wrestling. Even with the messed up hip, he's continuing to endure, to wrestle. Now let me ask you this. Why? I've spent one week trying to figure out why. Why, why would you do this? Why would this happen? What does this mean? And I just have an answer, a question, why? Let me tell you some whys that I found. Listen to this. Why does this happen? This is crazy. Here's what I heard. God can never use any person greatly until he's hurt them deeply. That may be true. It's not in the verses. Guess what that is? That's eisegesis. That's trying to make it say something that it, it probably doesn't say. I've heard three or four sermons. God can never use a person greatly until he hurts them deeply. That may be true. It's not what the verses say. Here's another thing I saw. Here's what this means. We have to be left alone with God in order to have a dealing with God. That may be true. It doesn't say that in the verses. So I said there, and the person actually has a sermon saying, you have to get alone with God and then God can deal with you. 
It doesn't say that's what happened. It says he had a wrestling match. I don't, that could be the reason. Another thing says his possessions went across the river. So guess what this sermon said? Until you're separated from all the things you love in your possessions, God can't deal with you. I don't know. I think he can deal with rich people, poor people. He can deal how he wants to deal. That may be the case, but that's not what these verses say. Here's another one. Jacob fought with God, and when he was overwhelmed and hurt, he then submitted to God. I saw a sermon on that. Do you know what the verse says? It says he prevailed. It doesn't say he submitted. It doesn't say he was overcome. That's not in there. Here's one I saw, and and you might write a song about it. He needed the master's touch. He got his hip broke, broken. I don't know. It may be true, but but it doesn't say that in the verses. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. This account did happen. This account is true. It's okay to say this is odd. It's okay to say God wanted us to know it. It's important. And here's what I can tell you. It does appear to be a turning point in his plan for the nation of Israel and in the life of Jacob. So I don't have to come in here and tell you, you have to lose all your stuff before God can get your attention. That may be true. It's not what the verse is saying. Be careful of trying to make a verse say something it doesn't say and let the verse say what it does say. Let me tell you this. Be careful of a person that tries to make a verse say something it doesn't say, let the verse say what the verse says. That is a big deal. This happened. He leaves with a mark. Guess what he does the rest of his life? He limps. His responses are different from here moving forward. All right, back to our chapter 33. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. And 400 men were coming with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. Notice it's the order that he loves them by. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now I want you to see this. Notice in the past he's hidden behind everybody else. He sent the gifts first. Guess what it says in chapter 33? He puts them all together. He passes them and goes to meet his brother. You know who offended his brother? He did. You know who's got a problem with his brother? He does. You know who's under the threat of death? He is. Guess what he does? He takes responsibility and he goes to the front of the line. That's the difference that's occurred. I don't know what brought that out of that event, but you know what he does? He owns the problem. He owns the issue. He goes ahead of everybody, and he meets with his brother. All right, what happens then? Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has granted your servant. Then the maids came near with their children. They bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children. They bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of the Lord. He says, Look at all this. This is for you, brother. This is your stuff, brother. Notice this. Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Sometimes I think Esau takes a bad rap. You know what he does? He forgives. 
You know what he does? He's gracious to his brother. You know what he does? He could have said, you're right. I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to take half your stuff. You know what he does? He says, I have plenty. You keep your stuff. I have my stuff. What a gracious, kind response we see in Esau. Then Esau said, let us take a journey and go, and I will make before you. And he said, the Lord knows that the children are frail, and the herds and the flocks are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven one hard day, all the flocks will die. He says, let's go home. He says, the animals are too weak. Let's slow down. Please let my Lord pass on. You go on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of my children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau says, come on, let's go home. He says, I'm, my animals are tired. My kids are tired. We'll go slowly. We'll catch up with you. Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. All right. There is peace in the family. There's peace with the brothers. There's peace in the land. He's back home. God's plan has moved forward. God's people are back where they ought to be. And then here's the last. We're going to be right on time. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Ooh, the promised land. And when he came down from Padam Orion and camped before the city, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Most important, I, I think, most important verse of the entire 4 million verses we read tonight. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. El Elohi Israel. God's plan is moving forward. They're back in the promised land. He builds an altar. And there it says he worships, El Elohi Israel. Here's, here's what I think is the most awesome thing. Remember earlier it said, the God of my granddaddy Abraham and my dad Isaac. And, and now this word translates, the God of Israel. He's talking about himself. It literally translates, God is the God of Israel. He builds an altar. All this events transpired, and here's what he says. His name is now Israel. God is the God of Israel. See this. It's personal. He's his God. No longer is he the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Now he's the God of Jacob, of Israel. He is his personal God. Let me end it by saying this. Our response is the same. And you know, we, we do not build an altar. We go through Jesus. And you know what, we can have a personal relationship and I can say, you know what, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel and Jacob is the God of Toby and the God of Pete and the God of Tony. We can have a personal relationship. Our hearts worship and know our God through the person of Jesus. I think that's awesome. God is the God of Israel. We can say the same thing to the person of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this, and this is how we're going to end. We're recorded tonight. If you've never trusted Christ, 
He is your hope. He is your answer. He is your peace. If you've never made him your savior, tonight you can call him. He'll save you. And you can say, God is the God of, and it puts your name there. That's the hope we have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask if you'll stand tonight. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. I'm glad you were here. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come. We're thankful for you. We praise you tonight. We worship you tonight. We're thankful for your grace, for your patience, for your kindness, for your love shown to us. I pray as we read this tonight that we grow, that our, our understanding of you grows, that our trust in you grows. And I pray, Lord, that the result is a people that are faithful and obedient and that you would be known and you'd be glorified. I pray for the folks here tonight, some of them coming through tough stuff, Maybe stuff in their relationships, maybe in their homes, maybe at their schools, maybe in things we can't even fathom. Um, we know you're not going to leave us. You're not going to forsake us. You're our peace and our hope. Lord, I pray for all of them. Bless them, encourage them. As we go back to the rest of the week, let us be agents of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Glad you're here tonight.